So if you, how many of you like, are like, I like change? Raise your hand. All right, yes. All right, we're recruiting a team. No, um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to change the service order. Yeah, I'm going to preach now, and then after you've heard the preaching of the word, you're going to respond to the preaching of the word by singing. All right? So if you want to open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5, we're going to flip this whole service on its head. You're like, I don't know if I can listen to a sermon if I haven't sung a song first. And if that's true, I hear you. You can go step out in the parking lot and sing. And come back in, and you'll only miss a couple of things. So Daniel chapter 5 is where we are as we take a week uh, for each chapter in the book of Daniel. We have made our way to Daniel chapter 5. It's a very uh, unique and wonderful story. And the storyteller that wrote chapter 5, inspired by God, has written this story in a very special way, and I hope you enjoy how he tells the story, and we'll highlight it as we read it along. But Daniel chapter 5 and verse 1, we're just going to jump right in and we'll give it context as we go. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. So the storyteller just opens us up on a scene. He just plops us right down into a party scene. There's not necessarily anything that's too noteworthy here. It's good to celebrate, and oftentimes in celebrations in the Bible, there is wine and feasting, and so we just dropped into a feast, a celebration, and you wonder, huh, I wonder what they're celebrating. The last verse we just read in chapter 4 says that King Nebuchadnezzar uh, wants to honor the high king of heaven. And so we might assume that King Belshazzar carrying on in Nebuchadnezzar's legacy, uh, we assume maybe good things are happening, but we continue reading and things change quickly. Chapter 5, verses 2 to 4, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the tabernacle in Jerusalem be brought, that the kings and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the kings and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So all of a sudden, you realize like, oh, this isn't just some innocent little party celebrating some holiday. This is the heights of blasphemy. It's like the heights of disrespect and sacrilege. They have taken these items that belong in God's house and they have brought them into this palace where people are getting drunk and they're drinking out of God's cups from his temple and praising false gods, gods of silver and gold and stone. And so you realize, oh, what in the world is going on here? Last time I read from chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar was worshiping the high king of heaven. What has happened? And so we wonder, who is this King Belshazzar? Who is this guy? So I did some research. Let me tell you about Belshazzar. So we think, historians and Bible scholars, that there's about a 20-year gap between Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5. When we read it, we might just assume that one thing leads to another, but there's like a 20-year gap. And so here's what happens in the 20 years. Nebuchadnezzar dies. He passes the kingdom on to his son, as you might expect. But what you don't expect is whenever your brother-in-law stabs you in the back and kills you so that he can become the king. And so that happens. But then you know that person who stabbed the other guy in the back? You know what happens to him? Well, yeah, he gets murdered too. 
And then you know what happens to him? Somebody murders him. And by the time 20 years go by, you have a man who is king, according to historians, and his name is Nabonidus. So Nabonidus is on the throne. And certainly at this point, you're sort of watching your back. But what Nabonidus does is interesting. He just gets out of town. He goes to Arabia for like 10 to 12 years he just leaves the palace and the throne, and he's just vacationing in Arabia. We don't know what's going on. But what we do know is when you read through history and you line it up with the Bible, well, that's the time that Belshazzar is king. And so Belshazzar is Nabonidus' son. So when you frame it up that way, it's almost like, oh, hold on a second. Here's what's happening, and I've seen this movie before. The parents are out of town, and so the son is like, Come on over. Let's have a party. And things get out of hand, don't they? Yeah. So the kids are in the service today. <clears throat> kids, don't have a party if your parents are out of town. It's a bad idea. So application point number one for your notes. Don't throw a party if mom and dad are out of town. Um, King <clears throat> Belshazzar all of a sudden is starting to look like a spoiled rich kid whose dad's out of town and he'll just do whatever he wants. But what he does is actually really, really bad. Times are different between now and Daniel's time in many, many ways. But one way that they are different is this. Back in Daniel's time, God dwelt in the temple. The temple in Jerusalem that Nebuchadnezzar demolished whenever he was taking over Jerusalem, God dwelt in that temple. And the items that were in that temple were holy and set apart for God because that was God's house. And those were his cups. It was, he dwelt in a space we call the Holy of Holies behind a thick curtain, the same curtain that when Jesus is dying on the cross. If you remember, a curtain tears from the top to the bottom, separating God's holiest place and, and, and what happens right after that, right? The Holy Spirit comes and starts to fill those of us who are Christians. And so you read in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17, and it says, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Times have changed since Daniel's time to the time you and I are living in now. Now, God still dwells in a temple, but it is not a temple in Jerusalem. It is your body. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he dwells in you, and you are a temple. And so if you think the things that Belshazzar is, is doing is bad to do with things in God's temple, then you ought to reevaluate the things that you're doing in your body because that's how it's framed up in Scripture for us. But, but that's not the point here. The point is just to draw uh, the contrast. So in Daniel's time, that was God's temple, and those were God's special and holy things. And so what Belshazzar was doing is just the height of blasphemy, the height of disrespect, and we are given a scene here, and we're supposed to see Belshazzar as just arrogant, wild, and sinful. And he's about to prove true another verse in the Bible, Galatians 6, 7, which says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he also will reap. There may be people in your life, or you might be a person who just is, mocks God. But God's word says, listen, you, God is not mocked. And here's how that's true for Belshazzar. Verses 5 to 9. Immediately, as soon as they started drinking from those cups, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. 
And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. And the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. I'm just, we have the kids in the service with us. Um, is there any kid that wants to come up here and demonstrate for us um, this verse? His color changed, his thoughts alarmed him, his, le- his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. Anybody? Legitimately. You can come up here and demonstrate if you'd like. I need uh, knees knocked together... I need fainting. Nobody? All right, all right, that's fine. You have to imagine the scene in your mind, though. This is what King Nebuchadnezzar, or not King Nebuchadnezzar, King Belshazzar happens to him. We've seen it in movies and in cartoons with the legs. But kids, this is my favorite translation of this verse. So listen closely. If you're going to listen to anything in this sermon, you want to hear this part. Here's how another version translates it. His face turned pale... And his thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself and his knees knocked together. It scared the poop out of him. He got so scared of what happened, it scared the poop out of him. We just uh, translate the Bible in different uh, words sometimes, right? We take it in one language, we transfer them over. But that's what's happened here. He's scared. He's scared. Halloween is a scary time of year, but nothing is as scary as if the hand of God appears and starts writing words on the wall. And so he yells and he brings in all his magicians and he says, if anybody can tell me what's going on here, and if somebody has to tell me what's written on this wall, nobody could, and now he's even more scared. And if you'll notice, it only took about 20 years for everybody to forget about Daniel. What about Daniel? Almost everyone forgot about Daniel. Almost everyone. Picking it up in verse 10. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So the queen remembered. Now the queen, if you noticed, came in to the party. The queen wasn't a part of this um, drunken party in which they were worshiping false gods. The queen is probably the king's mother or the king's grandmother. And she comes in and helps them remember the past and remember that this man Daniel exists. And so they call in Daniel. And here's the largest section of the verses for us. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel... You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. 
But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. He's probably the third ruler in the kingdom because his dad's the ruler number one in Arabia. He's ruler number two, and he can only give away ruler number three. So how does Daniel respond? He says in verse 17, Then Daniel answered and said to the king, the most powerful man in, in the known world, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. But first, I'm going to give you a piece of my mind. <laughs> That's added. But Daniel doesn't go right to the interpretation. He says, first, first king, let me, let me give you a little information. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys, and he was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven." And the vessels of this house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them? And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Another translation of that last verse says this. You praise the gods made of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or understand, but you have not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hands and who controls the whole course of your life. He hasn't given them the interpretation yet, has he? He's first just trying to capture the king's attention and get to the king's heart and help him see that he has exalted himself above God, and when that happens, God humbles you. And he says to Belshazzar, he says, you know this. He said that in verse 22. Belshazzar knew the story of Nebuchadnezzar, his father. He knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He knew what he was doing was wrong. He knew that he ought not to go over there and get those special things from the house of God and bring it over here and drink out of them. He knew he shouldn't have done that, and he did it anyways. God forbid you and I ever do anything as sacrilegious, as blasphemous as Belshazzar has done. But to keep us from getting to that level, I think maybe what we should do is just pause and consider the words that Daniel has just said. He says, God holds our life breath in his hands. So let's do an exercise together. All right, everybody. We're going to breathe in, and then we're going to breathe out. So let's do it together in three, two, one, breathe in. And breathe out. Let's do it again. So Daniel says that each of those breaths God holds in his hand. And he allowed you to breathe in just now 
and he allowed you to breathe out. Because he is exalted so much higher than you, you think, oh, I can breathe if I want to breathe. I'm in control of my life. I do what I want to do. Daniel's like, oh, but you don't. God is at the top of everything. And if he chooses, he allows you to breathe in and breathe out. And if he chooses not to, then he chooses not to. He controls your life is what Daniel says. He is God. He deserves our honor and our respect in all things. We ought not to mock him or pretend as if we're greater than he is. But we haven't even got to the translation yet. And so here it is. Then from his presence, the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mini, mini, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mini, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So the words that are on the wall, there's four words on the wall. Two of the words are mine, one word is tekel, and one word is parson. So the word mine means numbered, the word tekel means weighed, and the word parson means divided. So Daniel says, I can tell you what the words on the wall are. That word is numbered, and that word is weighed, and that word is divided. And then the Spirit of God filled Daniel with knowledge, and Daniel said, so here's the translation of these words that God has written on your wall. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and has been given to the Medes and the Persians. And now comes my favorite part of the story. This is, this is where the storyteller really does a good job. He writes and he says, Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple and a chain of gold and was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Which sounds great. Belshazzar, what a nice guy. He comes through on his word. What a guy. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom being about 62 years old. So if you're reading that story for the first time and you're reading it like it should be read, like you just got a book and you're going through it, that should make you stop and be like, hold on a second. How did, how did that happen? How did that very night King Cyrus becomes, is, becomes king? Darius, I'm sorry? How is that possible? I, I just, they're having a party. They're having a party and now there's a new king that very night. Kind of reminds me of, uh, so I, I'm a child of the 90s more than I'm a child of the 80s, really, although I was born in 81, but all my memories come from the 90s. So I remember vividly watching The Sixth Sense. And you get to the end of this movie. If you don't know what I'm saying, just give me a second. You can Google it. You get to the end of this movie, and you're like, what? What? I have to rewatch this whole movie now. I have to go back. If you're telling me that's what happens at the end, then I have to go all the way back to the beginning now, and I have to pay close attention to what's happening in this story because everything just changed based upon the last words. And so you go back through this story, and you realize in Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, that party, it's like the storyteller is just zoomed in real tight into one room of all of Babylon. He's just zoomed into the palace this one party room in the palace where a thousand people are having a party and the storyteller has us there. And we're like, oh, wow, a party. That's cool. But then once the storyteller has zoomed out, you realize, like, why are they having a party? Like, in those days, the Persian army doesn't just sneak up on the city of Babylon. The city of Babylon is this major city with impenetrable walls. 
How do they just sneak in and get him? No, like they've sieged the city. They've surrounded the city. Historians tell us, the historians have done the, the, the archaeological work and the historical work, and they say this is what happened. We can actually document it historically. The Persian Empire comes along and they siege the city, and they figure out that there's a river that runs under the city, and that if they can block up the river a, a little bit and, and divert it, then they can come underneath the city, wade through the water, come into the city, and conquer Babylon. And sure enough, his, you can ha- find the historians that have the proof. This is what happened. They come in, and that's how they get the city of Babylon. So the point is, while he's having a party, his whole city is surrounded. He's blind to what is happening to his city. He's living in denial. He's one of these people who's like, well, if the end is here, let's just party. And that's what's happening in this story. So probably when Daniel comes in, maybe, maybe Daniel's like, listen, you can keep your gifts. I don't need the robe and the gold because I know, as well as everyone else out in that city, we all know we're surrounded. We all know it, it can't be but a matter of days before the Persians invade. So you can keep your status, and you can keep your robe, and you can keep your gold. This is absurdity. We're surrounded. I'm not sure, but that certainly seems to be the scene that has been set. There's a lot to be learned from this story. There's a lot to be learned about how holy God is. There's a lot to be learned about God's control, right? God is in control, and we ought to respect him. There's a lot to be learned about how we get so proud and arrogant that we become blind to our own sinfulness. And we're going to look at those things in just a moment. Before we do, I want us to sing. And so I'll invite the worship team to come forward. But with this backdrop in mind, I would like us to be reminded of that we serve a holy God. And before we look at applying this to our lives, let's first make sure we understand who God is. And we serve a holy God. So this first song we're going to sing is called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And you might recognize it. It was written in 1529. So uh, it's been around a while. It stood the test of time. It was written by Martin Luther. And it's a song that reminds us that our mighty fortress is God, not our nation, not our own strength. We don't have to fear the darkness that has surrounded us. A mighty fortress is our God. It says, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, this body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still, and his kingdom is forever. The second song we're going to sing is going to be a new one. The team will teach it to you, and it's called Only a Holy God. It was written in 2016 by a group called City Alight, and it is going to help us understand that we serve a holy God who demands our worship and our respects. Would you stand with me as we sing in response to hearing heard and listen to the word of God? Maybe you're saying to yourself, oh wow, we've sung and we've heard preaching. We're going to get out of here early. The handwriting is on the wall. We're getting out early. Two comments in response to that. Um, One, isn't it amazing how our culture is so, um, there, there's biblical stuff hidden in our language that we don't even appreciate. And so I went back and I researched this this week and I was like, surely we don't say the handwriting is on the wall because of this remote story in Daniel chapter five. But sure enough, the Bible is so infused into this English language that we speak that that is just a natural thing we say. Oh, here's something that's obvious. The handwriting is on the wall. Um, then the other part is just like, come on, we can't let you out this early. That's silly. 
Um, uh, so let's talk about application. Let's talk about application, and then let's sing a couple more songs. Application. The handwriting is on the wall means that something is obvious. So we say, okay, I see that they're firing people at work, and I see that they're doing it by the date of hire. And last week, uh, the guy who was hired before me got fired, so this week, the handwriting is on the wall. It's obvious. I can so clearly see what's going to happen. Obvious. So you look at this story, and you're like, Belshazzar, this was obvious. The, the army was surrounding you. Like, you're there having a party while your city sits under siege. This is so obvious. And then the handwriting goes on the wall. You still give Daniel the third in power as if you still think, you still think you're giving out uh, crowns and gold and robes? Like, are you that dense? The handwriting is on the wall. What's wrong with you? Well, here's what's wrong with us. Sin blinds us. We are blinded by sin. It can happen to Christians, and certainly Christians, non-Christians live in a blind state. And you can't see the obvious. So sin can blind us. Sin can blind us from the past or blind us to the past. So when sin is in our lives, it clouds up our vision so that we can't see the past, which is what has happened here to Belshazzar. He should know. He does know. Daniel tells him, you know what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. You know the history of this city. You know that Nebuchadnezzar exalted himself above the Most High God, and you know that he was humbled, and he was on his hands and knees eating grass like an ox. You know that, Belshazzar, but your sin has blinded you to the past. You know that if somebody exalts himself above God, they are then humbled, and you have been blinded to the past. What about me? Does that happen to me? Am I sometimes blinded to the past because I'm my sin? Well, I don't know. I mean, do I ever get so consumed with worry that I convince myself there's no way God can solve this? But meanwhile, in my past, if I could remember my past, I would see that, oh, last year or last week, God showed me that he can get me through something like this. But my sin can blind me to the past. Do I ever repeat the same sin over and over and over again, forgetting the lesson that I learned in the past? Yes, I do. And, and here's my um, sin that I always just forget and seem to fall back into. So I'm at home, right? And I'm in my house and I'm like this. I have a certain expectations of how things should be. I won't go into detail. But if I look around my house and things aren't how I think they should be, then sometimes what can happen is my pride can flare up and I can begin to say like, oh, this isn't how I want things to be. And then I can start to get gruff and I can start to get angry. And next thing you know, I can start to yell and shout and I can start to use my words to hurt other people. But then I have a moment of clarity where God, you know, reveals, he opens my eyes, he helps me see my blindness, I'm able to confess my sin, and then I'm able to see like, oh, my sin blinded me to the past. Because you know what I know with absolute certainty? That shouting and yelling at people and, and hurting people's feelings doesn't accomplish anything good. Like, I know that. Like, right now, I have vision to see the past, because right now I'm not in the midst of my sin. And I can see from the past that that does no good. But you know what might happen this week? I might get so caught up in my pride, my arrogance, that I might get blind to the past and, and forget or ignore the fact that yelling right now isn't going to solve it, but I'm blind to the past and I just go for it. I mean, it happens to me. I don't know how, what your besetting sin is. I don't know what it is in the, that you struggle with remembering, but your sin blinds you to the past. 
But let me give you one that might apply to all of us. The elections are coming up. All right? We've been here before. All right? We've, we've been here before where, where, okay, if we could just get this candidate, if we could just get this thing in place. So but let, me just, let me just try to remember. A mighty fortress is our state? A mighty fortress is our nation? Oh, a mighty fortress is my political candidate. A mighty fortress is my political party. No, right? No, 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 no. But it's easy to be blind to the, what happened in the past and, and forget that, okay, a mighty fortress is my God. A mighty fortress is my God. And my God has an everlasting kingdom that will never end. And I am first and foremost a member and a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And, and rulers will come and go as God sees fit. If I could just remember the past in these coming weeks and not be overcome with false hope nor unnecessarily in the depths of despair. We all have blind spots. We all have them. They come and they go and we confess them and God gives us vision, but that's the point. Whatever it is that is your besetting blind spot, here's the solution. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, as the great song says. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Jesus came to give sight to the blind. He came to open blind eyes and to help us have a perspective and a vision of this world as it is. He came so that we would remember the promises of the past and what he has done in the past. He gave us his word. And so if we are blind to the past in the midst of our sin, we should probably just flood our mind and our memory with, with this book because this book is full of the past. And we can remember what God has done in the past. And, and right now, bookstores are full uh, of biographies and church history because you know what? Brothers and sisters of ours in Christ that went before us, they have seen God do great things in the past. There's podcasts you can listen to. There's no reason why we have to forget about what God has done in the past, is there? We're surrounded by people in this room. Each one of us in this room, I'm sure, has a story about how when they looked to their past, they could see God working in mighty ways. And so the solution for, for the blinding effects of sin to our past is to stay in fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ, to be filling our minds with the stories of the past, with God's word, and as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, hopefully, hopefully we can have less blindness this week than we did last week. Sin can blind us to the past. Sin can blind us to the present. This also happened to uh, Belshazzar. It blinds him to the present. There he is, surrounded, and he's having a party. He's having this big party, and he is blaspheming the only hope of salvation that he has. How can you be so blind to what your present reality is? And I'll tell you how, because sin blinds us to the present-day realities. And you see, like, well, I would never be as blind as Belshazzar is. Let me tell you what it is for me oftentimes. I'll complain about some little thing and all the while ignore all the amazing things around me. So I'll sit in my house, and maybe you do this too. You're, you're in your home, and, and you just begin to obsess about this one thing, right? Like the mess, right? <sighs> the mess. Or, oh, oh, 
the bathroom, the toilet is always running. And then you go down this, this, this rabbit hole in your mind of complaining and why does it have to be this way? Or that kitchen, all oh, the kitchen needs to be updated. Why do I have to live like this? The bedrooms are too small. Like whatever it is for you, you look around your house, the paint is peeling. And then you can just, you can just go there, can't you? You can just go into this complaining mode. You can just go into this mode where you're just ungrateful and upset about the situation around you. And you know what you can do? You can do exactly what Belshazzar has done. You're blind to the present because you know what you have? You have kids around you that are making a mess. And you know what you have is you have a roof over your head. And you want to know how many people in the world don't have a roof over their head? And you know that you have a kitchen? And you know that you have a toilet? Even though it's running? Like we can become so obsessed about this little thing and be totally blind to the present day realities that are surrounding us of all of the goodness of God that has flooded us in this moment in our home and we're just blind to it all, and all we can see is the thing that we're upset about. How does that happen? Because sin blinds us to present-day realities. That's what it is for me oftentimes, but it could be anything for any one of us sitting here. Any one of us, a lot of, a lot of people are blind to an addiction that's controlling them, and they just don't see it. A lot of people are blind to the power that lust has over their life, a lot of people are blind to the effects that greed is having in their heart, in this present reality, but they just can't see it because their sin has blinded them to it. Their own selfishness. Some of us, our cities are surrounded and besieged, and we're just partying. We're just living and doing whatever we want to do. The handwriting is on the wall. It should be obvious but our sin blinds us to the present-day realities. Here's the beauty of the gospel, though. Jesus died to set you free from addiction. Jesus died to set you free from the power of lust or greed that is in your life. He died to give you that freedom to live as one who is free. He came so that you would follow him in, in, a, in a life that is not a selfish life, but a life that is full of self-sacrifice and self-denial and service of others. If we will turn our eyes upon Jesus look full in his wonderful face, then the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The grace of the gospel is that, is that I can't actually, you know, give myself a vision this week. I can't. I can't overcome the power of greed in my life this week. I can't. But God can. I like to describe the gospel sometimes just in two opposing words. And the two opposing words are these, do versus done. And so do is this week as I go out from here, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do it this week. This week I'm going to do it. This week I'm not going to be selfish. This week I'm going to be grateful. This week I'm not going to fly off the handle and get mad. This week I'm going to do it. As I leave here today, I'm committed. I will do it. There's a measure of that that is appropriate, but the gospel has, is, tells us another word, and that is the word done. And what we come here to worship is the fact that Jesus Christ has done it. And what has he done? He has set you free from that besetting sin. He has given you the freedom so that you can do that, but he has also forgiven you for every time you fall back into it this week. Every time you step into that same old trap that you stepped in before, he is there to give you forgiveness and grace and wrap his arms around you, his beloved child. And that imagery, that picture of grace and forgiveness, you know what that should do? It should change your heart. And it should change the longings of your heart so that you no longer want the things that you used to want, but now you're so overwhelmed with the grace and the forgiveness and the love of God that you choose a different option this week. That's the power of the gospel. 
But we can't go out of here saying, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it this week because I can already sense it in myself. I know I'm going to go pick up those kids. And my kids are in another room right now because one of them's sick. I'm going to pick up those kids and they're going to uh, aggravate me in some way. Not because they're bad, because they're wonderful kids, but because I'm sinful. And I'm going to just, you know, not respond how I want to respond. I know what lies ahead of me in this coming week. And I don't say that to be a defeatist. I say that to give us some perspective. Because as soon as I leave here, I'm afraid that my faith is going to fail. I wish I could hold on to this moment right now. Because I know that what awaits me this week is moments where my faith will run cold. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back forward and we're going to sing a song, two songs actually to close. The first one has these words to it. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. You see, as we leave here today, we, our eyes are fixed on Jesus and the fact that he is going to hold me fast this week. Hold fast is language that comes from nautical, from boats. People on boats, there's rigging and there's sails and they're holding a rope in their hands and the sailor would yell to another one, hold fast, hold fast. And what we're saying as we sing this song is, I can't hold fast, but he can hold fast. He must hold fast this week. So we give him all of our worship and all of our attention at this time. Would you stand with us and sing, He Will Hold Me Fast?